Good morning again. Last Sunday, in part one of our very brief two-part series, I opened with a statement made by Al Mohler. Speaking in the year 2014, about three years ago, Dr. Mohler talked about the massive sexual revolution that was upon us at that time. The cultural push to celebrate homosexuality and to legislate same-sex marriage. And at that time, he wrote about how the culture was watching to see how we evangelicals would react to it. And how voices, even from within the church, were calling for a radical reinterpretation of scriptural texts that had been agreed upon for more than 4,000 years. And the evangelical response to all this, he wrote, would speak volumes to the world about what we believe about biblical authority, about marriage, about sex, and even about the gospel itself. And Moeller was correct three years ago. Unfortunately, since that time, we've seen denominations, we've seen prominent churches, we've seen Christian leaders and artists go apostate, choosing to chase the culture rather than stand firm on Scripture. We've watched them affirm so-called loving monogamous same-sex relationships and even give their approval to same-sex marriage. It has gotten so bad that in some church quarters, you're more likely to be persecuted for standing on the truth of Scripture than you'd be persecuted for living a gay lifestyle. That is true. Recently, there was a powerful video posted on the Gospel Coalition, and I would highly recommend it to you. It's a video of this man. His name is Sam Alberry. See if we can get there. It is always good to put a face to a name. Maybe you've seen this video that's going around. Sam Alberry is a cleric in England, and in this video, he is addressing the general synod of the Church of England. And in this video, he is describing his struggle with same-sex attraction and declaring his desire to live a celibate life in light of that, affirming the biblical teachings on marriage and sex. And he describes in this video how, as a young man, he was bullied in school for being gay And now he declares that he's being bullied once again, this time by his church, by his denomination. And not for living a homosexual lifestyle, but for the very opposite reason. He's being persecuted for having stood upon the teachings of Jesus in relation to sex and marriage, if you can imagine. That is how far we have come. It's bad out there, folks. And you have to know that this, what we're experiencing right now, is just the beginning. There continues to be a very a very strong push and pull debate on very foundational issues within the church. A whole bunch of things that are controversial and all tied together related to the truth. Let me give you a few examples. The egalitarian movement within the church, which continues to pick up steam. The rejection of male headship in the home. The question of gender and transgender. The rise of a suddenly aggressive form of feminism. And if you think the powers behind the LGBT movement are now content because they've been able to sway some of the evangelical world to come to their side, and that now somehow the pressure, they're going to take their foot off the gas pedal, and that pressure is going to subside, then you don't understand the depravity of man. You don't understand the downward spiral that we're in right now. The pressure is going to continue to build. And those issues, issues of male and female and marriage and sex, all of these things are tied together, and slowly... The foundational truths, again, that we have believed for 4,000 plus years are being slowly chipped away in our day. And it's happening 
at a lightning fast pace. In order to set the context for our time this morning, I want to share another bold statement that Dr. Moeller made, and this one he made just last month in February. Now, I said it last week, I believe that he is one of the sharper uh, observers of culture, and many of the things that he said in the past have come true. Of course, he's not inspired, but the words that I'm about to share with you, I want to warn you, they're somewhat jolting, and I don't say them, I don't quote him in order to scare you, but to sort of wake you up to the reality of what's going on around us. The The words you're about to hear deserve our consideration and reflection as we look to live out our faith in this disordered world that we're living in. Dr. Mueller was interviewing the senior editor of the American Conservative Journal recently, who's written a new book, and here was this gentleman's opening statement. Listen to these words. I believe that we are on the edge of, and in fact within, the collapse of Western civilization. Now, right, just stop there for a second, period. Think about that. We are within, right now, the collapse of Western civilization. He goes on. It's a very comfortable collapse because we're rich, but it is collapsing in the same way that Roman civilization collapsed in the West in the 5th century. I believe that Christians now have got to realize that we're living in a post-Christian civilization and take measures to build a kind of ark for ourselves with which to ride out the Dark Ages and to hold on to our faith. God is no longer at the center of American culture or Western civilization. Biblical Christianity is now a minority position, and in many places in our society, it's actually considered bigotry, and it's not going to get any better. It's amazing. Uh, Sometimes I have conversations with you guys, my friends, and I talk about these things, and, and I know sometimes you walk away thinking, I think Jeff's lost his mind. He's gone conspiratorial. But when really smart people say the same thing, I start to wake up. I start to look around and say, what's really happening in our world today? This author went on to talk about the failure of the evangelical church over the past 40 years. How we have replaced biblical Christianity with something he calls this. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Maybe you've heard that term. Basically, here's what that entails. Four things. Number one, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. Number two, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Number three, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he's needed to resolve a problem. And number four, good people go to heaven when they die. That, of course, is false religion. Masquerading as Christianity. Jesus did not teach that. Paul would not recognize it. And yet that's what's passing for Christianity being taught every Sunday by people called pastors in church buildings across this land. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. This senior editor continues. He says, it's easy to think that I'm being an alarmist when you look around and you still see churches all over the place. But go inside those churches, he says. Talk to the people about what they know about the historic Christian faith, about biblical interpretation, about doctrine. More often than not, you'll find it's very, very thin. Moeller adds this. He says, in thinking about a post-Christian culture, many misunderstand what we mean by that. We don't mean that Christianity is illegal. We don't mean that there's no gospel-preaching churches. We don't mean that Christianity has been completely expunged. What we mean is that Christianity now lacks binding authority in a culture where it once had binding authority. Where once it was the primary superstructure of moral accountability 
of meaning and being. And now it's been relegated to this, God as a hobby. Now this article is quite long. Yeah, I mean, it, it, is a, it is a long interview and there's many things that I could say that come out of this article, but here's what really grabbed my attention. Here's what Moeller said. He said, I think evangelicalism as an ism is just a moment in history. Modern evangelicalism lacks the theological substance of the Reformation. Here's this. I do not believe it has sufficient resources to survive this era or much beyond. That what we know as evangelicalism today will not survive what's coming because of our lack of roots, because of our lack of depth, our theological substance. Now, as we sit here all comfortable this morning, it begs the question, what does this mean for us? And how does it relate to our discussion of homosexuality? As we come back to that in Romans 1, we obviously have a whole lot to talk about. So grab your Bibles, and let's go back to Romans 1. We're looking at verses 26 and 27 as we did last Sunday. By the way, I want to repeat the warning I gave last week. If you have kids here in the service this morning, we're talking about mature themes And so if, I'm not sure I see any, my eyes are terrible, but you can still check them into the kids' kids ministry if that's something you'd rather talk about at home before we talk about it in church. Where's Jesse? Is Jesse here? Or Tanya? Okay. Or see Taylor in the back, right? Hey, Taylor. Wake up. (laughs) Yeah. If that's necessary. Great. Well, if you weren't with us last Sunday, I want to implore you this week to go to our church website and listen to the last Sunday's message. It's oakhillbible.com. You click on the link for media and listen because that lays a really important foundation for what we're going to talk about this morning. Without it, you're going to be wondering, well, why isn't Jeff exegetically breaking down this passage? And the reason we're not doing it today is because we did it last Sunday. And so you want to go back and listen to that. We also looked at seven current attacks that are being leveled against this passage from people within the church, so to speak, who claim, profess Christ, and are within this bubble term we call Christendom, who are leveling attacks to try to chip away at the interpretation of this passage in Romans 1. We looked at why each one of those arguments or attacks lack a real foundation, why those arguments fall short. So let's look at this passage once again, and then we'll proceed with Uh, what we want to talk about today. In fact, let's back up to verse 22 again, as we did last Sunday, and let's get the flow of the passage. Romans 1, verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Here's our two key verses. For this reason, here's this phrase again, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman And burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, as we showed last Sunday, the first thing that jumps off the page here is how 
severe the language is. Look at the words you see on the screen. Impurity, dishonoring, a lie, degrading, unnatural, indecent, and error. So as much as there's all these people out there striving with all their might to try to twist the meaning here and try to to make it fit what they wanted to say, the passage really does say what it says. And there is no way around it. And we talked about the logical progression here. When a person rejects the knowledge of God, it leads down a path towards idolatry. This foolish exchange where we give up the incorruptible God for created things. And with idolatry comes sexual confusion. The exchange of God's natural design for that which is unnatural and shameful. It's a logical progression that Paul is talking about here. It starts with suppressing the truth about God and it ends up affirming and celebrating things which are both illogical and utterly sinful. Paul's trying to tell us that homosexuality is a tragic sign that we are a broken and corrupted species living in a broken and corrupted world alienated from our creator. Well, this week I'm going to be preaching at the Master's College in their chapel and I'm going to be t- talking to the students about what their life looks beyond college. I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. And I want to challenge them to consider how they're going to respond when they leave this thing we call the college bubble. And they go out there into the big wide world and suddenly they're faced with a hostile culture. How are they going to respond? And when I go to talk to them this week, I'm going to ask them five important questions. They're the same questions I'm going to ask us this morning in relation to how we deal with homosexuality. Here's the five questions. Number one, first of all, when the culture comes against you and confronts you with ideas that are counter to your worldview, will you have an accurate biblical answer? That's important, isn't it? Will you have an accurate answer? Number two, will you have the boldness to engage? Okay, armed with the truth, will you now be bold enough to put your neck out there and engage in the dialogue? Number three, will you love your enemy enough to engage and tell him or her the truth? That's important, isn't it? Number four, will you engage in a way that is both humble and inviting? And number five, will your life ultimately support the words that you're saying? All five of those steps are important. Let's talk about a couple of them. In regard to question number one, we did that last Sunday. We looked at some of the answers that we need to have about what the text of Scripture says. And by the way, there's so much more to be learned. That was just a small amount, what we talked about last Sunday. But guess what? It requires study. It requires a commitment on your part to say, I want to be equipped. As I'm being confronted by the culture with all these different worldviews and ideas, I want to be equipped to respond well. And that's going to require a commitment to study and to learn and to grow. But let's look at the second question. Do you have the boldness to engage the culture on this subject of homosexuality? First, can you do it with biblical accuracy? But second, armed with the truth, are you bold enough to just stick your neck out there and say, I want to talk about this. I want to enter into this for the sake of sharing truth and putting the gospel out there for even somebody who is hostile towards me to hear. Are you bold enough to do that? Here's what we need to know. Right now, our opponents in this discussion are outworking us. And they're outscheming us. And they're using better strategies than we are to engage in the debate. Let me tell you what they're doing right now. First of all, they're currently bullying and shaming us into silence. Did you know that? 
We're being bullied and shamed into silence. We have been told by the cultural elites in our society that we no longer have a voice in this debate. And we're saying, oh, okay. You've lost the culture war, is what they're saying. Progressivism has won. So either get on board the agenda or keep your mouth shut. That's essentially what they're saying. It's 2017. And your ancient text that you're holding on to, all these old ideas about family and marriage, they're an outdated product that belongs back in the 1950s. This is one of their favorite arguments. I just saw Ewan McGregor on some late night show. And this was his argument. He was talking about his role in Beauty and the Beast. And this one scene, I haven't seen the movie yet, but this one scene that allegedly has some hint of homosexuality to it. And that was his argument. The host asked him, what would you say to those people that are worried about this movie? His response was, and he dropped an F-bomb, which I won't do this morning. It's 2017. That's not an argument, by the way. But that's a, boy, people clapped as if that's an argument. It's not. But that's what they're using right now. They're calling you and I outdated because we're clinging to our text. The second thing they're doing is they're accusing us of being haters. They're doing a great job of painting us in a light that we don't necessarily belong in. That we're those finger-wagging busybodies that are running around judging everybody but ourselves. We don't love at all, they say. In fact, by their tolerance, they say they're the ones who are loving their neighbor. This is why the LGBT lobby has been so effective with their campaign called Love Wins. They've outworked us, and they've outschemed us, and they've outmarketed us. Now, we know where all this comes from, right? All these lies that, that pervade our culture, we know where they come from, so we shouldn't be surprised at it. But here's the thing we need to understand. We recognize that the, the atmosphere to engage in this debate out there is pretty intimidating right now, isn't it? Nobody likes to be called a bigot. Nobody likes to be called outdated. It's intimidating. And so, unfortunately, many Christians have just, you know, raised the white flag. They've surrendered. They're choosing to just go with the flow and fly under the radar. And I'm going to be honest this morning, and I'm going to share something that may hurt some feelings. To me, there's nothing sadder than a secret Christian who lacks the boldness to stand for biblical truth. Nothing sadder than that. Someone who says, I am so grateful that Jesus took upon himself the shame and the agony of the cross for me, but at the same time chooses not to risk their personal comfort for him. Nothing sadder to me than that. Not only do we need to be equipped with the answers, we've got to pray for a boldness. The type of boldness that the apostles had in the first century, who went into the public square and engaged in the debate, even after being beaten and whipped, by the authorities, to pray for that type of boldness. Because folks, we're entering into a time which is slowly drifting back to that type of hostile culture. That's what Moeller is talking about here. Don't be surprised when things shift dramatically. We need to pray for boldness. What about the third question? Do you love your enemies enough to take the time and to make the effort to engage in this particular dialogue? And it may get messy. Are you willing to love them enough to get into messy conversations. Make no mistake, the question of homosexuality is a gospel issue. Because if we really do believe what the scriptures say, then we know that lives are at stake and eternity hangs in the balance. This is something we often forget as we go through our day. 
people all around us are perishing. It's a gospel issue. So when our culture embraces and promotes and celebrates sexual confusion that moves people away from God and towards an eternity in hell, we have to pay attention. This is our call of the Great Commission, is it not? We have to pay attention. We can't just roll over and play dead and go quiet as people perish around us. Our motivation is love for our neighbor. Our motivation is not to return to some nostalgic 1950s morality. Get that straight. Our motivation is not to, to quote, fix America. Our motivation is not to try to recover some good old days that I guess we're happier back in the 1950s. That is not the motivation for sharing in this debate. The motivation is love for neighbor. And by that I mean a true love. Not the type of love that the other side has, this tolerant for everything love that just pats people on the back as they go deeper into their sin. Not that type of love. True biblical love that cares for their eternal soul. If we follow the example of Jesus and love those who hate us, then we will take the time and we will take the risk to love people enough to say something and not fly under the radar and not be quiet. What about the fourth question? This is really where I want to spend the most time on today. The fourth question is key. Will we engage in the debate in a way that is both humble and inviting? Some people use the term winsome in a way that's attractive to the world to say, look at the beauty of the gospel. Are we willing to do that? If we're prepared with good answers and we have the boldness and the love for people, can we now do it in a winsome way that shows people how beautiful the gospel is? Honestly, this is where evangelicals have failed miserably in the past. And and we should admit that. And recognizing the age that we live in now, as Moeller said, Christianity no longer has binding authority in our culture, so we can't rely on that. We've got to get in there, and we've got to change the way we do things. We have to do better if we want to fulfill the Great Commission. Much of our failure in the past can be blamed on the wrong answers to numbers two and three up there. Here's what I mean by that. Our boldness to speak out has often been stronger than our love for people who are lost and broken. Let me say it again. Our boldness to speak out has often been stronger for our love for broken and lost people. Maybe in the past we spoke out with anger, loudly, frustrated by what we see in our culture. Maybe our motivation was more about being right, about fixing America than it was about loving broken people, and so we've done some damage out there. Yeah, we need to be bold, but we can't be militant. We can't shake our fist at the very people in our harvest field, right? Remember, we're not trying to win the argument. And as somebody who is super competitive, I fall, you know what I'm talking I fall short at this as well. It's not about winning the argument, even though it feels good to win the argument, doesn't it? It's not about winning the argument. It's about people. It's not about politics, by the way. It's not about power. It's about a love for people. And let's be honest, in the past 20 years or so, Guys, we have so tangled up Christianity with Republican politics that it's almost indistinguishable now. In fact, ask the average man on the street what an evangelical is, and they will tell you it's a political term, not a term that describes the beauty of the gospel. We've messed it up. 
So whether it's accurate or not, or whether it's just a stereotype, in the eyes of the LGBT community, we have come at them angrily. More likely to mock them or to use slurs against them than we are to serve them or pray for them. That's our unfortunate history. We need to remember that even as Peter exhorts us always to be ready with an answer, right? An answer for the hope that we have. Always ready to respond with truth. He also exhorts us to do it how? With gentleness and what? Respect. Yeah, we have to have answers. We need to be bold, but always with gentleness and respect. Every human being made in the image of God deserves to be treated with great dignity. Even when they have profoundly wrong ideas, even when we disagree vehemently, even if they're spitting at us and calling us names, they deserve to be treated with dignity. We've got to get that right. We need to remember that we are the salt and the light of the world. We're to point sinners to the grace of God. To draw them towards the beauty of knowing Christ. How can we draw people to the beauty of the gospel if we're always filled with rage over politics? Or if we're filled with frustration and anger because we see the culture going in a direction. We're, quote, losing our America. And I felt it myself and had to overcome that, had to battle against that feeling. Because if I'm filled with rage and frustration and it's about politics and winning something back that I feel like I'm losing, then people get rubbed out of the equation. Friends, this requires humility and self-awareness. Have we forgotten our own sins? Have we forgotten that we too deserve God's wrath? And apart from God's grace, we would receive that wrath. Do we forget that as we get angry at the culture, as we lash out at people? Do we forget our own failings? Important distinction to make here this morning. Same-sex attraction is not the same as homosexual behavior. I need to say that really loud. Same-sex attraction is not the same thing as homosexual behavior. Behavior, that's critically important to understand. If you're an elder, a pastor, a counselor, a church member, a a friend, a family member, understand that distinction. Same-sex attraction is temptation, not sin. And all of us are tempted, right? Jesus himself was tempted, yet without sin. We all experience temptation. Folks, there are men and women in every church Every church who are wrestling with the temptation of same-sex attraction. In fact, I I read this great testimony this week from one brave soul who was willing to sort of come into the light and share some of the pain that he's experienced in the church. Let me read just a bit of his testimony. He says this, Not long ago, someone asked me how long I've been dealing with same-sex attraction. 20 years, he writes. Of those 20 years, five and a half have been as a married man and as a father. I'm not gay. I'm a new creation in Christ, he says. I'm a Christian struggling with unwanted same-sex attraction. I'm a pastoral worker and a Bible college student, and homosexuality has been a prominent part of my journey as a Christian. I wish that it weren't so, though part of me knows that God has been using this struggle powerfully to draw me to himself. Same-sex attraction has shown me how God can work in a specific issue like homosexuality while also showing me glimpses of God's fatherly heart and sin's deep effect on other people. 
It's given me personal and emotional insight as well as pastoral understanding. I had hoped God would have shown me these things in another less painful way, but his ways are his ways, mysterious, and I'm not one to tell him how he ought to do his job. What a great perspective. And now, as I read that, a series of questions come to my mind about us. Because we have a tendency to block this stuff out. We say, well, come on, we're a conservative Bible-teaching church. Nobody in our church is struggling with this. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. So let's test ourselves. First of all, are we consistent in our biblical view of sexuality and sin? Are we consistent in this? A couple questions. Do we agree that sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage is always sinful, whether it's homosexual or heterosexual? We do, right? Do we agree that Jesus took the sexual ethic of the law a step further when he said this, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do we agree that Jesus took it a step further? He really went to the heart of the matter, right? Do we agree that Jesus' radical view of sexuality highlights the fact that we are all sexual sinners to some extent and in need of God's grace? I hope we will. Here's what I'm getting at. Do we have a tendency to harshly judge homosexuality while ignoring our own sexual sin? Or giving a wink and a nod to sin because it's heterosexual? By overlooking that or ignoring that, or I won't look, I will look the other way because it's heterosexual, not homosexual. We better be careful. I've been asked, I don't know how many times in my life by people, is there such a thing as a gay Christian? And the answer is really very simple. No, not without repentance and a turning away from that lifestyle. But that shouldn't be a surprise. After all, if you ask me a similar question, is there such a thing as a fornicating heterosexual Christian? My answer is the same. No, not without repentance and a turning away from that lifestyle. Am I clear on that? You can't be a genuine Christian without repentance. That's just biblical. Everyone, including me, is guilty of sin, but the authenticity of our faith hinges on repentance. We agree with God about our sin, do we not? We say, yep, you say it, I agree, I'm guilty. We confess it to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, right? We place our faith in him once again, and we say, on we go. And that process gets repeated over and over again. Faith and repentance, right? Continuing to believe until the day that he calls us home. That's the genuine mark of an authentic Christian. In Romans 8.23, Paul talks about how we as believers groan in our bodies. Can I get an amen? Here's the verse. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of of our bodies. These, these bodies of sin, we so look forward to having them redeemed once and for all. And the older I get, the more I understand that passage. And I think this is particularly true when we talk about sexual sin, how we long to be delivered from it, right? How, how we long to, to, to not feel that, that pull, that temptation all the time, and to have our bodies redeemed from it. 
I've been saved by the work of Christ, but my full salvation has yet to be realized. Did you know that? I'm being saved day by day. So we call an already not yet scenario. I'm already saved, but it's not yet fully realized. Man, I look forward to that day. We sang about it this morning, didn't we? I know that I'm forgiven now, but someday I'm going to have total freedom from sin. I have a measure of healing today, but someday I'll experience absolute wholeness. But that means for now, you and I struggle in these bodies, and we carry with us the scars of sin and corruption, these bodies of death, Scripture calls them. Here's what I I read, a a good description of this recently. This is a great little, little piece. It says this, Consider a man who regularly sinned under the influence of alcohol. One night, drunk and irresponsible, this man gets into his car and drives it right into a wall at high speed. His body is broken, but his life is saved as he's taken to an emergency room and received treatment. He recovers from the accident, but he will forever walk with a limp. One of his legs, badly injured, will heal to a point, but it will never be fully restored to what it once was. Now, follow this man as he goes along and comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He becomes a wonderful trophy of God's grace. As he's being transformed by the Spirit, his affections are reordered to the point where he gets victory over alcohol. Praise the Lord, right? Regeneration has produced a new man. Even a sanctification is demonstrating his growth in grace. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But here's the key. He still walks with a limp. The work of the Holy Spirit in his life is evident, even as his limp continues to be a part of his experience. He will limp all the way to the grave. It does not disqualify him from displaying the glory of God. In fact, he begins to see his limp as a way of explaining to others his path towards salvation. I want to tell you who I was in order to tell you who I am now by the grace of God. You see, this limp is part of my journey. I don't exult in it, but it's an important part of telling my story about how I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and how he has changed my life. Friends, we all have a limp. Every one of us in this room today has a limp. It's a scar that we bear from the sins of the past, from the corruption in these mortal bodies. And thank God we've been redeemed from it, but we still limp. Isn't that true? Our limp may not be homosexual sin in our past, but there's a limp somewhere in our own disordered passions, in our own sinful desires, our unique proclivities. Together, we'll all walk with a limp to the grave. Constantly repenting and trusting in the shed blood of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we are all trophies of God's grace, even as we limp. And on that day when we see our Savior face to face, every tear will be wiped away and every limp that we've had will be healed. And in that moment, we will finally and perfectly display the full glory of God. I want you to think about that. As you think about your own sexual sin, as you think about the limp of others who are wrestling with same-sex attraction, who may have homosexual sin in their past. And I want you to be careful. And I want you to be compassionate. And I want you to be humble. As we wrap up, 
Let me share with you a little bit about what I've observed as I have ministered over the years to people who struggle with same-sex attraction. Because I think this is important to say. Because of the stigma of it, and because of how the church has traditionally dealt with people that struggle with that particular sin, there is always a heightened sense of alienation that others will never experience and that few people in the church can understand. And we need to know that because of that, these men and women who are struggling with this particular sin can feel very alone, even in a congregation like this. They can feel like they have few options in terms of people that they can talk to, people that they can trust and be honest with. And it can lead them to great despair. And it can lead them to even leave the church, sometimes and tragically permanently. So the question is, is Oak Hill a place where this type of temptation can come out of the shadows and to the surface where we can minister the grace of God to someone who is battling, who desires to know and serve God but is battling? Is this that safe place? Author Justin Taylor exhorts us like this. He says, Every sinner loves his sin, but the church must love sinners more than sinners love their sinfulness. Are we capable of helping sinners see that their identity is not found in their sexual urges, but in their identity as a child of God in union with Christ? That's what Sam Alberry had figured out. I want to go back to him, and I'll put his picture back up so you remember who he is. This is what Sam Alberry figured out. I was so encouraged by what he shared in this video. And again, I highly recommend it. Here's what he says. Sexuality is not a matter of identity for me. And that has become good news. My primary sense of worth and fulfillment as a human being is not contingent on being romantically or sexually fulfilled. And that is liberating. The most fully human and complete person who ever lived was Jesus, yet he never married was never in a romantic relationship, and he never had sex. So if we say that these things are intrinsic to human fulfillment, we are calling our Savior subhuman. Sam doesn't find his identity in his sexual urges. His identity is found in his union with Christ. That's a heavy cross to bear, by the way, is it not? To commit to a celibate life because you affirm the Bible's teachings on marriage and sex. It's a heavy cross. And if there are people in this body who are carrying that cross, we want to go and lift it with them. Amen? Should we be firm and defend what Scripture says about homosexuality as a sin, or should we be gentle and inviting? The answer is yes and yes, right? Let us never fall into this false dichotomy that the world is, is shoving at us right now, that we have to pick one or the other. We either have to be militant and angry about this as a sin, or we just have to be openly tolerant of everything and anything. That is a false dichotomy. We must not fall into that. We must remain absolutely steadfast on the truth of what Scripture teaches about this sin while extending grace and compassion to people who are lost and broken and are searching for answers. The world we live in is changing rapidly. Sociologists cannot believe how quickly the culture has turned on this issue of homosexuality and same-sex marriage. They've never seen anything like it in the history of mankind. 
Things are changing so quickly, and they're going to continue to change. Now, is Western civilization crumbling? I don't know. Only time will tell. Is the evangelical church going to survive? I don't know. But here's what I do know. It's a very exciting time to be a Christian. I am not a chicken little guy that says, oh, everything's changing and what a disaster and we're all going down in flames. I say, no, this is a time to engage. This is an exciting time to be, look, we have the answers, do we not? We have, we have the understanding of the problem and we have an understanding of the solution. What an exciting time to engage in the debate. I hope you'll engage with me. Will we be bold? Will we love our enemies? Will we engage in a way that is both humble, where we recognize our own failings, and also winsome and inviting, where we say, look how beautiful the solution is. Look how beautiful the gospel is. That's our calling. Last week, I recommended a book on homosexuality in the church written by Kevin DeYoung. He makes a whole bunch of really great statements at the end of the book, commitments that the church needs to make. I'm just going to read, read some of them, and we'll be done But these are all important statements that I hope that every person in this room can look at this and say, I affirm that. Because we want to be of one mind here. Here we go. Number one, we will preach through the Bible expositionally so that we end up teaching the whole counsel of God, even the difficult and unpopular parts. Some of you guys know in 10 years at this church, I've never preached about this subject because it hasn't come up in the text. But guess what? We're in Romans 1. Time to do it. That's called preaching expositionally. So when it comes up, we don't skip over it. We don't deny it. We say we're going to dig in. That's what God would have us do. Number two, we will tell the truth about all sins, including homosexuality, but also about the sins that are more common in our own congregation. Amen? You can affirm it with an amen. Good. Number three, we will guard the truth of God's word, protect God's people from error, and confront the world when it tries to press us into its mold. Amen? Number four, we will treat all Christians as new creations in Christ, reminding each other that our true identity is not based on sexuality or self-expression, but on our union with Christ. Amen? Number five, we will extend God's forgiveness to all those who come in brokenhearted repentance, both homosexual and heterosexual sinners from the proud to the greedy, and from the people-pleasers to the self-righteous. Amen? Number six, we will repent and ask for forgiveness when we are rude, thoughtless, or joke inappropriately about homosexuals. Amen? Boy, it's not getting as loud. That was not as loud. Number seven, we will strive to be a community that welcomes all those who hate their sin and struggle against it, even when that struggle involves failures And setbacks, because that's every one of us. Amen? Lastly, and this is a long one. We will seek to love all in our midst, regardless of their particular vices or virtues, by preaching the Bible, recognizing evidences of God's grace, pointing out behaviors that dishonor the Lord, taking church membership seriously, exercising church discipline, announcing the free offer of the gospel, striving for holiness together, and exulting in Christ above all all things. And everybody said, amen. Listen, if, if I said to my wife this morning, this, this message is, is probably going to irritate some people. And it might, you might be irritated right now by a stand that I've taken or something that I've said on either side of the debate. I want to extend to you, if that's you, I want to extend my heart to you and to say, will you come talk to me about it? 
Will you talk to an elder about it? If you're struggling with same-sex attraction, I hope that you'll receive this as an offer to talk to somebody who might be able to help you carry that cross. We want to bring all sin out of the shadows so that the light of the gospel can be applied to it. And we want to walk with people through all the bumps and bruises of this life. Please, I beg you, if you need to talk to somebody, find me, find an elder, call me next week, send me a text. Let's get together. Let's talk it through. These things are so important. As this world is changing, we've got to engage in this, and we've got to do it openly. Amen? Bow your heads.